Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westridge-Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization and also a person living with AI arthritis diseases, plural, <laughs> like many of us. And I am here co-hosting today with two other of our fabulous recurring co-hosts. I have Bridget and Deb with me. Hey, both. Hi and there. Tiff. Hey, why don't you each do a little introduction of, of just yourself, where you're from, your disease, Deb? Sure, <laughs> absolutely. So on our screen, I was pointing, hey, Bridget, go ahead. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am Deb Kunstein. I am living in the Madison, Wisconsin area. And I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at the age of 13. So 40 plus years of having this fun disease. That's with major quotes around that. Yeah. So I'm happy to be here. Happy to be joining this important topic as always. Bridget. Absolutely. I'm Bridget Surrett and I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I have multiple autoimmune arthritis diseases along with some genetic issues uh, that I've had for over four decades now. So that's why I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And Bridget has some of you may know, just we, if you've heard the show, Deb has been a volunteer for many, many years, but so has Bridget. So it's just, that's one of the cool things about our organization is we really have longevity and people who are, who participate. And that's just really cool, I think says a lot. But we got to get back to the topic. And what is that topic today? So this is the first time we're putting this topic overall on the table, which means it's It is the second step in our process as an organization to address patient-identified issues, and that issue is about personalized therapies or complementary therapies, or aka non-pharmacologic, non-pharmaceutical. So we often talk a lot about the need for precision medicine or testing of biomarkers, of blood markers, saliva, these things in our body that give our personalized signatures because all of our diseases are unique. And so we as an organization thoroughly believe in fighting for subgroups, for zeroing in on what specific smaller groups instead of these large general patient populations based on a diagnosis and looking at what those needs are and what those therapies are needed to best treat to the individual characteristics of the person. But now we're going to move over from 
precision medicine to the real personalized complementary. Because let's face it, in order to fully manage our diseases that are systemic, that are full body, we're talking about fatigue in addition to the pain and maybe the brain fog. And I don't know, what else am I missing? (laughs) A lot of stuff, right? Exactly. Everything is encompassed in that. (laughs) And there's not just a one-size-fits-all pill either. So what we want to talk about today is the need for all of us to have this holistic approach to our diseases and have access to those because one of the problems is without a lot of really good, robust research, research proof drives access and guidelines and those type of things. And without that, it becomes very difficult. There's a lot of other components that we'll cover here, but we have to remember that as we are all individuals and as a result require therapies like drugs or those, that line of treatment that work best for us. And like a certain drug may work great for me, not for Deb, not for Bridget and vice versa, even though we might all have similar diagnosis, we can't forget it's the same thing for this. So if you say diet doesn't work for me, maybe it's the diet that you tried. Doesn't work with your specific body signature. I'm going to open this up as people living with these diseases and sort of just throw our stories on the table, our needs for complementary therapies. And Deb, why don't we start with you? Just kind of your journey a little bit and why this topic is important to you. Absolutely. So my background is being a medically retired dietitian. Diet's always been a big part of what I've kind of focused on. But let me back up even further. When I was first diagnosed with RA, it was JRA and all kinds of other little changes within there. But the bottom line, it's full-born rheumatoid arthritis and hasn't changed too significantly for the past close to 40 years. But Back in the day, my parents didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I, I, my dad was out of work for periods of time and I was on a program back in Illinois. It was called the CHIPS program. Don't even remember what the acronym stands for, but it was where we had to pay for all of my medications in cash first and then be reimbursed. So that was really hard for my parents. My grandparents paid for a lot of my medications um, and then were reimbursed when we got the reimbursement. And again, long time ago, young, I don't remember if it was 80% they got back or whatever it was, but significant enough. And my grandparents helped um, provide that stuff. So as far as the other complementary things out there, we couldn't afford it. So I didn't dig too deep until later in life when I was married and had um, really good insurance through my husband. But even now, a lot of these things are not covered by insurance. So it is an out-of-pocket cost. For instance, massage therapy, chiropractic, and CBD, any of those things are out-of-pocket. They're not covered. So I've dabbled a lot more in my second half of my life than I have 
prior to that, just because lack of access and money, frankly. I dug in pretty quick and deep into all the different kinds of diets because, again, it was close to my heart and tried many different methods and many different things. And lo and behold, I have no trigger for anything, gluten, dairy, anything. So nothing was a trigger for me. And I went back to kind of eating the same way I always did, which was still fairly healthy. There's always fruits and vegetables. Those are what the first go-to snacks are in the house. And um, I do have a salty uh, taste. So I'm not so much of a sweet one. If I have a piece of chocolate, it's a small one and I'm good. But as far as salty, like pretzels, I tend to go towards, but again, limit myself because again, the sodium's not good for me. Have had a little bit of CBD, haven't gotten much, I haven't been educated well enough to dig in deeper. So offline, Bridget, I might be contacting you. <laughs> I, was, I was sitting here Definitely. with my going, well, you came to the right place. On that exactly, one. <laughs> exactly. So those are just a couple of my experiences and just, you know, dietary supplements are another thing that I do take. But again, you always got to let your doctor know about what you're taking because all of that plays in the big picture of anything pharmacological or complementary. They need to know that too. So even if you're just taking a, like a general vitamin, just let your doctor know you're taking that because that's really important. So that's kind of my synopsis of my little bit of a story. All right, Bridget, why don't you go ahead? Well, if it's out there, I've tried it. Um, everything from cupping to tart cherry juice to, you know, moringa to supplements, everything. And my story is very similar where I found that um, most of us don't have access through either financial means or therapy, quality therapy, being in the vicinity of where you live. I live in an area that uh, does not have very good medical care, and I have to drive 70, 80 miles just to find somebody who might know about my therapy. And we work in our community. So I, I work in the special needs community and our patient community. Most families would love to try complementary therapies, but they just don't have access to it. It's it's extra time investment. It's extra money investment they don't have. A lot of them are on fixed incomes with Medicaid and they have to be at home with their kids. So this is where I think we have a lot of room for improvement. And there is a lot of room for dialogue in this as well, because I do believe the studies show that patients that have access to a host of complementary therapies, including pharmacological, they thrive better than those without access. Agree. 100%. So, you know, I personally have always been interested in doing things to complement the drugs that I'm on, the biologic that I'm on, for example. And I've really started trying to get back in the gym and doing exercise. That's been something very high on my priority list. And then I get really excited about it. And then I flare or in this case, break my foot because my foot's broken right now um, yeah. or have COVID again, which I just got over last week. So, you know, there's always those things that that happen <laughs> get in the to, way. that get in the way, you know. Yes. Um, you know, life gets in the way, but then when life gets in the way, that's frustrating. And then they add on top of it, disease flare or disease yes. complications, then it's like double. So then I get out of my routine. And so that's just one whole 
element of, of that, but also try to eat well, have done some with CBD, and never did anything like acupuncture or physical therapy, except for when I had a tendon surgery that had absolutely nothing to do with my disease whatsoever. And the reason I bring that up is because I know that's something we've seen at our conferences that we attend every year in rheumatology, the American College of Rheumatology and ULAR, which is now stands for European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology. They changed their name. I have it pinned up on my wall because I can't ever remember the new name of it for the life of me. it doesn't match the letters. It doesn't match the letters. So (laughs) I'm all messed up. But anyway, so those are the two uh, uh, big, uh, big rheumatology groups that we follow the recommendations and guidance and we go there. And we've been seeing a lot more, which we're going to delve more into today on guidelines by both sides on lifestyle changes or complementary medicine. And then also some specific sessions, not only that we've recently seen, but seen in the past in regards to, I know, I think it was ACR last year, 2021, when they were, we watched a session recommending that all people with, I think it was rheumatoid arthritis, I don't know, should go to physical therapy. And we all sort of laughed and said, yeah, how is that possible? Right. right. (laughs) right. Especially when there's only, you're only allowed like so many visits in a year. I mean, how do you possibly break that down? Yeah. So, but, but that was just one example of it's great that all of this is now coming forward, that it's being discussed more, but there is a very realistic access barrier. And I think it's very important. Number one, that we educate our patient community about the new guidance, the new research that's happening, because what that tells them is there are things in process that can lead to in-office access. But in-office access also has to lead to access where regardless of where you live. If that's in the United yes. States, we're talking insurance, depending on where you are, it's your government. Whoever is, is uh, coordinating your health care and your access to it, there is that level of barrier. So we've got a couple, we've got a road here that we're going on. And so in addition to the education and understanding the journey, instead of just saying, well, it'll never happen or I can't afford it, let's follow what's happening. Let's follow the process of research. Data drives access. So the more data that's happening and proof that it works will help. Okay, so Mm -hmm. that's happening. The second part of that is we, as people living with the diseases, need to be vocal about our needs because that is listened to. Data's important. Patient voices and your stories and your need for access are equally as important. So more of that. And that's what we hope to take away and, and have you submit and capture. Let's get into this a little bit more. You all out there, if you have stories, we want to hear your stories too of complementary medicine and your experience and why you haven't used it or why you have used it. And I think it's pretty common that we're going to hear it's an access issue, but let's dive in. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the guidance. So I mentioned two things here. I said, we've been seeing research 
but then there's guidance. So when I say guidance or guidelines, what happens is when a group of experts get together and create recommendations to help guide treatment for specific diseases, those are guidelines. And those guidelines, clinical guidelines, put the word clinical, because that means it's happening in your doctor's office. So that is helping the rheumatologist or your physician, whomever's treating you, to be able to justify, this is why I'm giving the patient XYZ. So in addition to the research, which we'll get to, it's important for the experts to come together and create clinical guidelines so that those deciding our access to our treatments have something to look at, okay? There's got to be justification for giving you access. So that's the first step. And guess what? It's happening. So in 2021, when we went to ULAR, we saw lifestyle guidance. Now, there wasn't a whole lot in there, but the point is that they were focusing on lifestyle meaning diet, exercise, those types of things in conjunction. And that's telling rheumatologists who attend the meetings that this is something you should be thinking about in your conversations. But now the American College of Rheumatology is working on some guidance too. And who better to tell us about that than Miss Deb Gonstein, who's on the panel? <laughs> yes, it is super exciting. We were at ULAR when I got the, it was a huge application and I actually had to reach out to my doctor to give a signed letter saying I did have rheumatoid arthritis and lots of other information they required you to submit. They wanted to make sure they had the decent people at the table to make these decisions. So there were 20 patients that were chosen and I happened to be one of them. Again, just kind of with my research background and dietetic background. And again, my experience over 40 some odd years. So that is the initial part. We had our meeting last week. It was five hours and we went through just general comments about different, like different statements that they were sending out there. And I had a lot to say. <laughs> and there were several of us that had a lot to say about them. I just wanted to also clarify that this is an effort by the ACR to create guidance for complementary therapies. And they started this a couple, a few months back. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe a year. I, I don't know how long back. But they had some experts that came together and created these domains or just think of it as like a checklist, a bullet point list yep. of the different categories, diet, exercise, you know, acupuncture all, or, or complementary alternative methods and physical therapy. And so they, they really, what they did is they went through and they looked and see how much research has been done on all of these things and of that research, how much of it is credible? Because basically they're creating an index. They need to know a starting point to justify recommendation. So it's like a, it's just like a big research party. 
trying to party. Twenty-eight of them. There were twenty-eight of the yeah. statements. I'm trying to you know make just make it more the, the thought of it, but it is all of this research that they have to look and see what's been done, and then based on that, was the data good enough to then justify this should become a recommendation, and if not. What needs to still be done to get us to that point while the experts are saying this is something to consider? Then it moved to this phase that Deb was invited to, and I have to brag and say five of our co-hosts from the show are on that panel, which is awesome. The one from Australia, one of ours from Australia. So they're getting, and they had people from Barbados. So they weren't just getting U.S. people, which I think is very cool. Yeah. And so I just wanted to add that that's where the patient panel came in. So we just wanted to give a shout out to the ACR for efforts to make sure that the patient voice, the people who this is going to impact were included in weighing in on the these bullet points, these domains, these areas that they're focusing on. So um, Deb, I did mean to interrupt. I just no. wanted to give a little a little context around yes, absolutely what this is that we're talking about. Go ahead. Absolutely. So we had that conversation. There's 28 of these domains that we talked about, and they presented the research. And for the most part, there wasn't a lot of credible research behind most of them. And just getting our overall impressions and feelings, which was great. So the next step is there's actually two patients that were invited to be part of the voting panel. And the voting panel consists of two patients and 19 physicians. The physicians are from all these different realms, and some of them are within these complementary medicine areas. In saying that, um, I'm going to read something. So Tiffany and I have actually been um, kind of laughing because we're both members of the ACR, (laughs) ARP members. So we're both showing off our magazines. There is a spot that they're talking about this, that it says new clinical practice guideline. And it says, the ACR is developing a new clinical practical guideline for physical, psychosocial, mind-body, and nutritional interventions for the treatment of RA. And they're expecting the publication expected in spring of 2023. It says the aim is to develop recommendations for evidence-based use of interventions for the effective treatment of RA, including mind-body activities, psychosocial, vocational treatments, dietary supplements, nutritional options, physical activity modalities, and rehabilitative approaches, bracing, splinting, and orthotics. And I can't always say this, adjunctive Am I saying that right? Sounds good to me. Um, Such as acupuncture and uh, massage therapy. It goes into lots of different things, goal setting, meditation, biofeedback, breathing exercises, all the different self-management programs like arthritis self-management programs, the chronic disease self-management program, better choices, better health, and operas, as well as on-demand programs empowering active self-management and peer mentoring and support groups. So again, huge 
amount of areas and information, there was really a lot of strong feelings. So again, I talked about being a dietitian. I went and did all the dietary things, but no triggers. But then other people were speaking up saying gluten was, if I cut that out and I cut out sugar, I am a new person. And physical therapy, occupational therapy. I've had that multiple times, but long story short, it was just very energizing to hear all the different opinions as well as the non-access. And a lot of people that are um, older adults are on Medicare. They're limited to, I forget the actual number, if it's 10 sessions, I'm just guessing. I don't remember the exact number, but the amount of sessions you have a year. So do you, if you've had a stroke, do you work on your swallowing and your speech or do you work on your, your um, ability to walk again? Those are choices people have to make because they're only allowed so many visits, which again, the whole point of access. I ran across the same thing when I had my shoulder replacement. I only have a certain amount of PT, but um, I also had two foot surgeries within the next nine months. And so I had to really figure out how I was going to manage PT, OT, figuring things out and access to this because I didn't have but a certain amount of physical therapy allotments. So half of my stuff could not get physical therapy. And and it's very discouraging. It's sad because, again, you would do so much better if you learned how to appropriately handle things. Yes. Um, I can't even tell you. I've had um, a wrist fusion and I've got really issues with my hands. So going to a hand OT and the splinting, I've had the splinting and the bracing. But the biggest thing is follow up to make sure those splints fit correctly if they're working correctly because usually they're molded and they can reform them and Mm -hmm. do all these little tweaks to them. Or if the straps aren't efficient or don't work correctly, or you need it replaced because it is helpful. Having all of that follow-up is as big of issue as even getting the first treatments to begin with. Absolutely. Um, just to make sure everything's working correctly. I've had both of my feet reconstructive surgery. That's what I did during COVID. Sign me up because what else do you do besides staying home and trapped in the house? We're twins. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But after every, I mean, I can't even say how transformative those sessions are of learning how to do things correctly. Mm-hmm. It's huge. But again, like Tiffany and bringing back to it's the personalized, you know, treatments and what works for me may not work for Bridget or mm-hmm. Tiffany, but um, you all have different experiences and we all learn from each other because you can't just want it since diet didn't work for me. You can't just take it all off the table because other people have life changing experiences in themselves. And I'm and I'm just going to throw this out there because yeah. just for the fact that I've mentioned this on the show so it depends on how many episodes you've heard before but I've talked about back of let's see I don't even know a few years back I had uh based on 
a medication that I was take, rubbing into my skin for rosacea, I developed Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And that is a very uh, potentially deadly reaction to medications. And mine came on slowly. A lot of times it's very quick and it's noticeable immediately, but when you're, it comes on gradually, I've learned it's harder to detect. Anyway, so um, in saying that, what happened with that is my immune system got so shaken up that nothing worked anymore. The biologic that worked well for me for seven years no longer worked. Things I was, I've yes. still to this day are now sensitive. I can't take ibuprofen, which is bizarre. Just so my point is that even within our own beings, there are situations that can happen that can shake things up. So if a biologic is suddenly not going to work or a different one might work better, the same thing can be true of a complementary therapy. Yeah, like perhaps. So we have to, I just really want to keep that thread going through this and through the listeners is we have to think about it the same as we might think about treatments. A lot of patients yes. get they they get it. Oh, my my treatment works amazing for me. I've been on it six years. This worked nothing for me. Oh, why doesn't it work for Deb? But it worked for me. We all have talked about that, and it seems accepted that that and that's yes. a reason why we need precision medicine. But we really need to remember that these are other types of therapies, and. Right we have to think of those the same way. So I've been guilty of saying, eh, diet doesn't work for me. Well, I can't tell you honestly that I have tried everyone. Can't say. <laughs> exactly. It's not easy to do the elimination diet. Oh, you have to do it I, for 30 days. I yep. admit it. I am nowhere near disciplined nor interested in right. giving up <laughs> some of those things. They make me happy. That is a really good yes. point. Is I mean, so like that, wasn't in interest to you. But again, for somebody else, it is all because there's a lot of people that don't want to go on medication. So they yes. want to try the complimentary stuff first. And I get it. I get it. But I was doing it in conjunction with my meds because, and I was still flaring all the time. I have never been in remission 40 some odd years and have never been in remission. And um, I'm talking about me medication related rem remission, not not like taking all my meds away and I'm still in remission. Not, I've never had anything close to either one of those. But yeah, exactly the same type of thing. And it goes hand in hand. Absolutely. I think we all have this spot of happiness it's a lifestyle, medication, and extra therapy combination that works for us. And it's different for everybody. And it can also change for us because our bodies change. And we forget that. We, we forget that what worked 10 years ago for us may not work or if we have another major body trauma, even something like a cold. A therapy that was working may not work again. And I have been fortunate to have one two-year remission. It was a controlled remission. I was on a biologic and some co-therapy. And that was a glorious time, but it would not have been achieved without either the biologic or the co-therapy. And so access is very important. And I know having the table to find what works for you is essential. Absolutely. Because even now, even so with Ectemera, I'm on Ectemera, I'm back on IV therapy and the, I was on pen injectors. So originally 
on infusions was taken off because of COVID. My medication was taken away because it was being used for inpatient COVID patients. And I get it, but it went on for over a year. I was on pen injectors, was flaring terribly, and I'm back on IV therapy and I'm doing really good. Yay. The doctor's like, really? Well, not even the doctor, one of the people that was doing the infusion, they're like, it's the same medication. I'm like, well, it's just how my body's reacting. And I do better on the IV therapy than the pen injectors. So again, that even that little piece is different with me, which go figure. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Keeps you on your toes and off the streets. Oh, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. So, so I want to start to loop this back together to the research and the guidance that we've been talking about, how this all really relates in. Because the last component, as we said, it would be patients speaking up, saying their truth, saying what they need, and figuring out what holistically, whole body, all approaches work best for them. And so just as a side note, AI arthritis, we're doing a shout out to Forward National Data Bank for Rheumatic Diseases, who has built and is housing our own database inside of their servers under their IRB, which is the, <laughs> I saw Bridget go, <gasps> I know, <laughs> which <laughs> is exciting. With, and, an, and an IRB is what you have to basically, think of it as a license to conduct research and there's very ethical standards. So we are have qualified under their umbrella. So that means we can start conducting our own research. And we are dedicating that databank and the research into really two facets. One being early detection diagnosis and understanding that. And the other being patient individuality, subgroups, atypical, everything that falls under that as it relates to precision medicine and personalized therapies. So this is very in keeping with the research that we plan to do moving forward. And a lot of it will be based on conversations that's called qualitative. So qualitative research is open-ended, question-answer, talking, recording your voice. Quantitative is data. That's like, yes, no. One through five. You know, I, I've had it for 25 years. That's a number. That's So that's the difference, so just to break that down. That is a great explanation Thank and you. easy to understand. I Thank love you. that. So both types matter. And often qualitative, the specific number, is looked at more than yes. the than the qualitative. So we are thankful that in addition to our organization conducting a lot of the qualitative, we get to work with Forward and their researchers to then coordinate some quantitative so that we have full-on research. And then we hope to reach out to the researchers that we're meeting at these conferences we go to that are hosting and conducting the research into diet, into exercise, into these other therapies. And yes, this isn't going to all happen tomorrow, but we want you, our listeners, to know what we're doing at our organization, how we're taking this conversation today and building on it with you and why we need your input really into the equation. We want to encourage everyone to continue to talk about this topic. 
So in saying that, let's just go a little bit deeper into just how much we're seeing this as a real thing now. And I say as a real thing because, and and, and shout out to, to Al, Dr. Al Kim or just <laughs> Al or however you want to say it. My rheumatologist from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Love him to death. And I can't say though that when we go into our office visits, we talk much about the other. We talk a lot about how my treatment's working and we might bring up just in conversation, oh, I've gone to the gym or things, but it's not something that's really ingrained. And interestingly enough, (laughs) the rheumatology magazine that Deb quoted earlier, guess who's quoted throughout? Dr. L. Kim. So (laughs) we know that he is very invested in these guidelines and in moving forward. And, you know, he, he says that in commenting, I'll quote him, in commenting on the guideline, Dr. Kim Al says, the concept of this is spot on because providers and patients really need are seeking non-pharmacologic approaches to improve their mindfulness and optimizing physical function. So he did express also concern about the health disparities. And once this does come to play, who will have access and so we we go right back to the access. And of course, that is an issue that many of us are going to face. And we just have to keep talking on our side so that we can be ready to push for all people and mm-hmm. all cultures and all societies yes. to have access to this because it cannot, we cannot go down the same path and have only a certain percentage of people having access to these. Absolutely. Right. And his other last comment is he's concerned that people will take advantage. Uh, He said with all of the health disparities, there's a lot of groups that might take advantage of an approach such as this. So take advantage of the patient, which I, I think is another concern that is out there, which is a valid concern. Definitely. He's a good, yeah, he again is a broad thick thinker and is able to bring the full problem to the table and is very complimentary as far as that they're actually taking on this, this whole project. Yeah. And so I just, I wanted to throw that in there just to let you all know, rheumatologists are very aware and supportive of this new move forward. And so we talked about guidelines. Now we want to talk a little bit about this different research that we're seeing and how it relates. And then I also want Bridget, because we can't go an episode without asking her a little bit about cannabis and CBD, because she (laughs) is the expert of this topic. And you can, we will make sure that you all have links to other episodes she has hosted on CBD 101, Cannabis 101. And we're going to actually do a 360 at breakout of this and the CBD as it relates to this, because she does have a lot to say. So I'm going to circle back on that as well, because we're going to, while there's a lot of things fatigue, brain fog, pain, right? There's so many factors that we have to manage and comorbidities and, and which are, you know, extensions of our diseases where our, our inflammation goes uncontrolled and then it the disease goes 
haywire all over and then other things emerge. So while the fatigue and the brain fog and those are symptoms of the core disease, things can happen like eye involvement or you know, we heart disease, things that develop as a result. So one of the other reasons that this is becoming to the forefront because that one pill, that one treatment can't <laughs> possibly come and manage this. So in saying that, we're going to just pick one of those symptoms and we're going to break out on that just so that we can tighten this conversation because it can go into many directions and it can with the new, I felt like I'm doing a, a like a commercial and it can with the new 360 from AI Arthritis Voices 360. <laughs> so we can do all kinds of breakouts. But in saying that, there was so much we just saw at ULAR 2022 on complementary therapy in regards to pain. And I want to first, just before I turn it over to Deb and Bridget to sort of take on the conversation on what we learned and why it's important and, and some on, on CBD, even though we didn't see that, we know that that is important. I want to mention coding. So one of the things that really was awesome that we saw is that Pain, chronic pain, not just pain. So chronic pain, which is defined as is chronic, long-term, three months plus, and recognizing the need for its own code in our healthcare system. And you're like, whoa, yay. Okay, wait, what does that mean? So mm-hmm. let, let me tell you really quickly. So these codes that we're now on ICD-11. So basically that means this is the 11th version of the codes and everyone's disease has a code. So when you get diagnosed with your, say you get diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, that has a code to it. So your doctor puts the code on and then every therapy that they choose, which is either based on something that's gone through a clinical trial or a clinical guideline or prior research, something is saying this is to treat psoriatic arthritis, then they prescribe it. And what happens is the person, the group, the insurance company, the government, whomever is deciding your access to therapies will say, oh, okay, this is for psoriatic arthritis. It has a code. The, and that's how it's billed. And so they charge it and it's called, there's all this like getting paid back or reimbursement. And we don't have to go into all of that. What you just need to take away from it is it's important to have that code because without the code, there's nothing to bill. There's nothing to put under it. So guess what? Chronic pain is getting its own code. What? Mm-hmm. So I love it. I, that I opens the door to treatment. And what I love is so much of the research happening at this time around it is non-pharmacologic. So I'm going to just button my lip right now, and I'm going to let Deb and Bridget sort of talk a little bit about that. Maybe, Deb, you could lead a hair because you were you actually saw the sessions yeah. that we're talking about at ULAR. Yep. And then I'm going to let, I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to let Bridget weigh in so that you two can sort of discuss this. Okay, so let me just talk a little bit about the session that was called Not Another Pill, Integrative Pain Management Approaches. And I've just got a shout out and I'm going to say her name wrong and I apologize, but I'm going to try. It's Pernil Fries Roan. And again, there's a 
always got a slash in it. So I know I'm saying it wrong. It's probably um, very different, but she is from the Department of Anesthesia, Pain and Respiratory Support, the Neuroscience Center in Denmark. Huge shout out to her as far as taking on this conversation. She talked about the definition of pain, what chronic pain is, introduced the new ICD code, which again is just a huge landmark. She talked about lots of different approaches related to chronic pain. She was a huge advocate about the biopsychosocial model. She says there's a gold standard addressing that. She broke down what each the bio, psycho, and social pieces and what each encompasses. She talked about the family support, because if you don't have the family support, that is part of the cognitive, affective, and behavioral parts as far as just, you know, getting support from your family. If you're not getting that, you're going to be on your own island floating away. Um, I know I'm like simplifying that, but I'm kind of intentionally doing that. The pieces that she talked about is in The um, chronic pain itself calls for management and self-management. So breaking it off in two pieces. And it talked about achieving self-management implies confidence in dealing with medical, emotional, and role management. And it talked about in the supportive ambiance for healthcare providers, it's crucial and requires non-judgmental communication, believing, listening, and valuing the patient. That in itself, I just want to stand up and cheer because she, I mean, she said it and she was very upfront and she said a lot of times she doesn't see that. So kudos to her for throwing that out there. And those are just the basics I just wanted to kind of cover, but it was done phenomenally. Yeah. I just want to throw this in there before we pivot over to Bridget, that the coping and the belief and the doctor-patient relationship was throughout the conference. So it was in this session, but it was also in like a dozen sessions, this whole validation and the importance of managing our diseases relies heavily on the patient-doctor relationship. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And um, and as we turn it over to Bridget specifically, I, I have a question for you. <laughs> I wrote it down on my piece of paper. While you're, <laughs> while you're adding to what Deb said, I want to know what can a pain code or chronic pain code mean for the world of cannabis and CBD? Ah, yes. So this is a very interesting topic because I had an experience with my autoimmune arthritis where it took me four years for physicians to figure out what was wrong with my upper body. I ended up with dystonia, cervical, my spine is collapsing now as a result, and I was denied treatment. I couldn't treat the autoimmune because they were stuck on, maybe it was cancer, maybe it was something else. And I had a a tumor the size of a mango and all of that was RA, all of it. And had we diagnosed that quicker, 
than four years, I could have prevented the reverse shoulder replacement that I had. I could have had a much better outcome as far as that goes, because as you know, when you are being looked at for something like cancer, which it took over a year to even remotely get that testing done, nobody nobody believed that I was in that much pain and that it was that bad. So it took almost a year to get that testing done. And when you're being looked at for cancer, you can't take your biologic. So that was a very, very difficult time. And I think that's incredibly important because that's one of the biggest things we hear is we, are, we keep getting dismissed by doctors. It's in your head. It's almost like there's a running joke that you have to be diagnosed as psychosomatic before you get anywhere. And that's after years of going to the doctor saying there's something wrong. So I think that's incredibly important that we have to realize that this doctor-patient relationship has to change and it has to not only include the data, but it also has to include what's going on on the ground with the patient and the patient has to be believed, especially with their pain. Now, a new code coming in for pain management, for cannabis, it's not going to do much of anything. Cannabis is still federally illegal and CBD technically is under state legalization, so it's not federally legal. Yet, it's only federally legal if you are prescribed Epidiolex, which is the prescription form of CBD. And that is United States, so the regulation's different in different countries, correct? Actually, that's throughout the world. It is throughout the world. Okay, I wanted to clarify. Okay. Yeah, that you'll find that in a lot of different places. Now, Canada is one of the few places that has a national medical marijuana program where they actually will, they have the ability to actually prescribe the non-epidiolex version of it. But that's one of the few countries that does. UK may have something similar, but it's it's still, it's really difficult to even get epidiolex in the UK at this point. Um, and then other countries, very much the same. So it's not going to help that. But what we're finding is a lot of our patients are being very quickly weaned off therapies that have been working for years because of guidelines. The physicians don't necessarily believe their pain. They go to the ER and the ER is like, you're a drug seeker. You know, we're not going to give you anything. And then they get things that either they know don't work for them or they know will cause them harm. And so I think if we were to have a separate code for chronic pain, it will separate out the acute intractable pain and maybe help us with some guidelines that would make physicians a little more at ease treating pain. Because right now that's one area that no physician wants to talk about because they are very concerned they're going to get in trouble. Their patients, you know, they're going to be looked at by the DEA. Their licenses are federal. So it's it's a really big stink right now with pain, even if you're just doing NSAIDs or going up to tramadol, which isn't a full-blown opiate like oxycodone or something like that. You have a lot of things, uh, gabapentin and benzodiazepines are starting to be looked at and being removed from patient care because of the possibility of addiction. And so you have a lot of patients that were doing well that had a need for those particular types of treatments but because the recommendations are only for intractable pain, they are very upset and skittish about prescribing them and they will fight you 
on that. And so we have patients that are just unable to access any type of pain relief. And that puts them on disability faster. That creates all of the the mental issues that go along with these diseases, because you know that mentally it's it's a very difficult thing to adjust to having chronic illness and having, you know, loss of function. And then when you keep going to your doctor and they don't believe you, that is so defeating and it creates a lot of PTSD within the community. So my hope is that this particular code will allow doctors to have a little more comfort in treating holistically and pharmaceutically, you know, as, as a whole being pain and, and teach pain management uh, on all levels, not just, you know, the NSAIDs. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That's like incredibly interesting. So one of the things that I was going to add, and I'm not going to go completely into it because if you want to hear the whole conversation, you're just going to have to listen to our debrief that we did from ULAR 2022 on June 23rd. And we will make sure that we provide that full link to you. And we did talk about this topic that we're we're talking about as well, but there was a session called placebo and nocebo. And when a placebo typically being the control of a clinical trial or when the people are not actually on any drugs versus the people who are. That's how research in clinical trials is typically conducted. They have to compare it to something to show that it's working. And so that's how they compare it. They compare it to someone who's not on the drug. And the patient will not usually know they're not on the drug. So it's called blinded. And what's happened over the years is it has been realized that when a patient thinks they're on a treatment, they tend to report improvement. So it's this, it's this placebo effect. And there's a lot of talk about this as well as it relates to pain management. And they're starting to think, I wonder if there's something to this. We're trying really hard to find non pharmacologic options to treat pain. So is there something with this mind-body that we can ethically go into and try to treat? There's a lot of controversy on, you know, how do you do that? You can't trick your patient, <laughs> you know? So so is it, then we're talking about the, the psychological therapy and the positive thinking, and this all sort of rolls into it. So again, you want to hear the whole review on that, you'll have to tune in to our YouTube video on that. But I just wanted to use that as an example of how far and diverse this whole complementary is going. So we're not only talking about diet or exercise or pain management with other physical therapies or, you know, non-pharmacologic, we're going even into mind and what, how our mind plays and our brain plays into pain. All of this being explored and really important and necessary, not only because we all need options, but as Deb brought up earlier, there are some people who just flat out will not use pharmacologic therapies and to each their own. But we need to have options for people. And there are people who will, but they want to wean off of them. And there's obviously a lot of side effects and potential harms that can come from using these pharmacologic drugs for a certain amount of time. All right. So this has been a fabulous discussion, Deb and Bridget. So I agree. Really 
excited. Again, different, different than, you know, anything else we've covered. So this is just a very different thing. And we had a lot to share. We'll have a lot more to share. And that gives me the perfect opportunity to mention a few different things. The first is how the show works. It's right in the name, AR Arthritis Voices 360. And just new in 2022, we built on this concept of the 360. So the 360 is literally any topic, any subtopic, anything that we talked about and put on the table here today can spin off into other directions, other conversations, and any medium, any format, any platform. We need to get all voices talking about this for many, many reasons, not only because it's, hey, it's just flat out therapeutic to talk to people who understand, but also, as we mentioned, this is important for research. This is important for access to these therapies because only when we hear and people hear the need and there's many, many voices talking about it, can we truly start to move the needle. So that is the first thing. And if you are interested in talking more about this, you could do it in many ways. You can email us at podcast at arthritis.org. You can find us on social media at all of our platforms or IF, which stands for the International Foundation. So IF, AI arthritis, and you can send us a message. You can look for our posts about the show. You can also sign up at our website for our AI Arthritis Voices program. And what this is, it's a free program and it connects you to all our opportunities. So one of those opportunities will be to join our data bank. We'll have opportunities to share more of your voice in this topic and many other topics. So we definitely encourage you to do that as well. And then I'm also going to plug something that's related to the show, another show that we did earlier. It was called Supporting Me, Supporting You, Supporting Us. And we're trying to develop a specific guide for the patient support network. So people who are part of our support network who also need support. That is really in keeping with what we're talking about today with improving our patient journey by listening to everybody else's needs and figuring out how we can open communication and dialogue together. So I definitely want you to check that out and we'll link to that as well. But as far as the 360 it goes, which spins off into directions we already identified a couple today. One, we're going to have Bridget back to talk more about the CBD and cannabis and build on not only this, but some of our past shows that were kind of the beginning level education that you want to check out. And then also something that Deb mentioned, you know, we don't, not everyone wants to go on meds. And that really ties in to something else that I saw at ULAR this time. And it was the different levels of our diseases. There are some people that have minimum disease and there's actually research happening right now into, well, maybe some people could just be on diet if we catch it early enough and maybe they have not so aggressive disease. So there's a lot in that that's starting. And so I think that that is a branch that we can go off in. And based on your conversation and your comments on this, we'll pick out some other ways that we can branch out into those. So before I give the final closing on everything, I want to thank Deb and Bridget. And Bridget, could you tell everybody where they could find you as the expert on the CBD and the cannabis? <laughs> Absolutely. I run the largest cannabis patient group in Colorado. 
and it's called Advocates for Compassionate Therapy Now. I have not done my website yet, but we will get there. And we also work on bringing the patient voice into policy recommendations to physicians. We work on educating people how to incorporate this as a therapy because, as we talked about precision therapy, you can do the same thing with CBD cannabis and other cannabis derivatives. There's D8 and all sorts of new fun stuff out there now that people are unaware of what they are. So I'm mostly on Facebook. So you can find Advocates for Compassionate Therapy now on Facebook. But we should have our website up and going shortly. We just had a transition from being a solely cannabis group to now we incorporate all sorts of compassionate care. As a matter of fact, we're, we're helping to pass the right to fix, the right to repair wheelchairs and things like that, um, and those types of things as well. So we work in all sorts of policy. And with us specifically, we work with medically complex because I'm I'm medically complex. And so, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. But definitely find us on Facebook, and I will happily answer all your questions. And she will, too. Yes. Because I, I send people there a lot. Now, you're based in, in Colorado, but you're open to everywhere, right? I mean, not, it's not Absolutely. limited. Absolutely. We actually, one of the components of what ACT Now does is develop open source advocate research. So we do that throughout the country and throughout the world. Actually, we have, it's being used in Australia, UK, uh, and some other areas as well. But we are in most states now with advocates using our, our research and our information. So absolutely. Okay, perfect. I just wanted to clarify that so that everyone knows get there, find this site, because this this group and website coming soon. So that is really a wrap. Thanks again for Bridget and Deb. So, My pleasure. Uh, this My has pleasure been too. fantastic. We'll continue the conversation. And again, you can find us on our website at arthritis.org. And we are going to ask, please consider pushing that big red button and giving us a donation if you love the show, because that helps us keep these and all of the new 360 going. And with that, we are going to call it a wrap and make sure that you please pull up a seat at the table because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 